Thank you for tuning into this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called Foolish Things, a study in 1 Corinthians. Now in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul draws a sharp distinction between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. He tells us that Jesus' way looks like foolishness. Even though Paul wrote in the first century, the way of Jesus still seems foolish to many people today. So why should anyone follow it? Join us for this series and learn why being foolish is actually the wisest thing you can do. Once again, thanks for listening and feel free to check us out at tablechurchdsn.org. Good morning, church. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Once again, good morning. How are we doing? Yeah? Cool. How's everyone's summer going? It's flying, isn't it? Goodness. Um, So I I fly to Zambia on Thursday. And uh, we've got a, a team from the church going to Zambia. We've got a missions partner there called Poetis International, uh, very near and dear to my heart. We've been working with Poetis um, for hmm, 13 years now, I think. And so I've gone lots of times. I think this will be my 10th time going on a trip with Poetis, my 11th time going to Zambia, and my 12th trip to Africa. I just can't stay away. I love it there so much. And... Um, and so, just so you know, that's something we want to do more of here at Table Church, is take missions trips and expose ourselves to God's heart around the world. It's not to go and say, hey, look, we're Americans, we're going to fix all your problems. You know, that's not at all. In fact, we're trying to deprogram ourselves from that, to go and see just how much we can learn from people around the world can be very powerful. And so we're doing this trip. There's four of us going. Please be praying for us. Um, I'm not going to tell you, but we got some cool stuff lined up while I'm gone, and so you don't want to miss. I hope that you'll be here and supporting the, uh, the preachers that we have lined up. But also, um, just so you know, like next year we'll be taking another trip, probably to Juarez, Mexico. In fact, in, fact, in a few months here, we'll start, we'll start advertising that to take another trip with Casas por Cristo. Um, and then probably two years from now, we'll go back to Zambia. That'll be kind of our rhythm for the time being. So just be praying about what, what God might be asking you to do as, as far as international missions goes uh, it has changed my life, and that is an understatement. And so I want everyone to experience it. So I sometimes laugh at how uncreative our ancestors were at coming up with our last names, at least us who are white of European descent. Like some guy was a blacksmith, and they're like, hey, let's call him Smith. Some guy's dad's name's John. Johnson. You know, uh, sometimes, though, you get a name that actually tells you about the qualities of the person, not just some kind of random detail about their life, but actually tells you a little bit about what they were like. My name, for example. Uh, Apparently, I had a very wise ancestor. And so they called him Wiseman. And the name has stuck. I was doing a little research, 
online, I discovered this interesting fact. Back in the 1200s, there was a big census taken in England. They call it the 100 Rolls. This big census was taken. And one person who was researching this census wrote this. They said, it is interesting to note that the instances of wise and wise men are nearly all from two university counties in England. Okay, so there you go. Wise men's, the earliest wise men's were probably well-educated, hence the name. Now, in our passage today, Paul talks about wisdom. My ears always perk up when, when the conversation turns to wisdom, because I think, well, I'm named after it. I should know something about it, right? But what we're going to find is that the kind of wisdom that got me my name probably would not have impressed Paul very much. My ancestors had what we call today book smarts. They went to an elite British university. Who knows? I, I can hope and dream, but I think they might have studied theology because that's like all schools taught back then, right? And so they might have even studied theology at some elite British university, which I think is kind of cool. But none of that would have impressed the Apostle Paul. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, he says. So as you can see, Paul did not have a high opinion of the wisdom of what he calls this age or of the, the rulers, the people that run this age. He says they're coming to nothing. Now, some people read this verse and they think uh, that Paul's talking about when he says the rulers of this age, he's talking about like Satan, his demons, stuff like that, spiritual forces. I think Paul talks about that, but most scholars seem to think that that's not what's happening in this particular verse, that Paul's actually talking about earthly rulers, the people who actually are the culture makers of his time. So Caesar, the governors, um, the, the, the generals of the army, the soldiers, the people who are running to sh the show in ancient Rome. These are the rulers of this age. And the wisdom that Paul is speaking against is the popular views of his time, the, the cultural zeitgeist, it's called sometimes. See, the philosophers of the time, they were very proud of their wisdom. Wisdom, Sophia, this was a word that was thrown around a lot. It was something that everybody wanted to have. There was an elite class who considered themselves very learned. And if they knew wisdom, then they were mature. That was one of their words. Because they possessed this special knowledge. So go ahead, and if you have your Bible open, I want you to underline the phrase, wisdom of this age. The wisdom of this age. And somewhere nearby, you can write popular views about what is right or good. That's all it is. Popular views of what is right or good. And in Paul's day, there was popular views about the way life should be lived, about what constituted the good in life, but what happiness meant and looked like. But Paul is calling out the dehumanizing wisdom of his time that parades itself as this sophisticated, advanced knowledge. And he's saying, look, the cross has shown that that's not true wisdom. The cross has shown what true wisdom is. Maybe we should do the same. 
You know, you can actually trace a little bit of irony in Paul's words here because he says we speak a message of wisdom among the mature. He's using their language, wisdom, mature. These are the words that they threw around about themselves. And Paul's saying, you know what? Uh Uh-uh. We've got wisdom. The cross is wisdom, he says. And it's, it's nothing like what your culture tells you it is. Paul speaks of two ages. In verse 6, he talks about this age. Okay, that's referring to earthly life in Corinth in the first century. Uh, but then there's also in the Bible, the age to come, it's called. Now, when the Bible talks about the age to come, it's talking about a time when God will fully come and rule over this world, and he will vanquish all that oppose him. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection was like, it was like a foretaste of the age to come. It was almost like the, the age to come was, was breaking into this age and starting to invade it, if you will. It's not arrived completely, but it has started breaking in upon us. Now, the Bible says that we can know, we can experience the age to come, even though we still live in this age. It says in Hebrews 6, it talks about people who have tasted the age to come. And in the book of John, it says that those who believe in the Son have the life of that age. Not of this age, but of that age. So we have these two ages, and the the one to come is starting to through Jesus, is starting to break in on the old. So the age to come is defined by the power of God and a cross-like love. And it started to, to break into our age. And we who know Jesus can actually experience this life here and now. And Paul says that his wisdom is wisdom from the age to come, not from this age. The rulers of this age, he says, the wisdom of this age is coming to nothing. They're being canceled in modern terms. Like it, they're, they're gone. Why? Because they don't have the wisdom of God. It says in verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have, if they would have understood the wisdom of the cross, they would have never crucified God. You know you're wrong when you crucify God, right? That's a good sign that maybe something's askew in your worldview. Now, here's something I notice about Paul. On this issue, he is very black and white. He's not going, well, there's some good things on both sides. I'm not playing both sides of the coin here. When it comes to this present age versus the age to come, he doesn't miss mince words. This age, its wisdom, its rulers are coming to nothing. This series we're in is called Foolish Things. And Paul says that the way of the cross looks foolish to others. But then he says, well, guess what? Actually, their way is what's really foolish. Earlier in the book, he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, Paul really has no regard for the wisdom of the world. He says God made it in foolishness. Now, there's a word that we hear often today, at least I hear often today. I'm not sure. Hopefully some of you have heard it. Otherwise, I'm just going to be talking to myself for a second here. Um, in, in my line of work, it's, it's the word deconstruction. And this is a word that's been around for several decades. Actually, philosophers have kind of used, postmodern philosophers have used it. But recently, it's become rather popular in, in the church among kind of Christian circles, uh, a lot of people like me who grew up in the church or in, 
evangelical church uh, who are now looking around and seeing all the stuff that does not look like Jesus uh, in the church that we were raised a part of and we're saying, holy smokes, was I led down the wrong path? I need to go and I need to investigate the stuff that I've been told and see if that's really the case, if that's really true. And so sometimes deconstruction is a good thing. In fact, you might even argue that it's something we should all do to some extent. Like deconstruction can simply mean, hey, I'm going to drill down and try to figure out what's true. I, I want to figure out what in the world's going on here, you know? I, I want to own my faith. I want to make it my own. I don't want to just accept the things that I've been told just because I've been told them. And so deconstruction can mean that you're trying to own your faith for yourself, and that's, that's good. It's not uncommon for someone to say, I'm in a season of, of deconstructing my faith. And I've been there. In some levels, we should all be there. But you know what's interesting? What I never hear anyone say, I never hear anybody say, hey, I'm really just deconstructing secular modernity right now. You know? Hey, right, I'm just in a season of deconstructing prevailing views of power. <laughs> Nobody says that. But you know what Paul says that might be worth deconstructing is the wisdom of this age, he says. He's like, try deconstructing the modern or postmodern views of power that you've been raised into, that you were born into, that you weren't even necessarily taught because it's coming at you all the time, everywhere you turn. Like we're talking about the, the level below consciousness, you know? Like we call this a social imaginary. This is just the way you view the world kind of reflexively. It's been inundated with a particular view of things. We call this late modernity or post-modernity or whatever, you know, there's different words. But we all have this. We were born into this ocean that we swim in. And sometimes we might want to stop and say, hey, how does this line up with the gospel? Try deconstructing contemporary views of the self, of pleasure, purpose, truth. You see, deconstructing our faith can often mean truly trying to understand what it's made of. That's great. But what deconstruction sometimes means is, hey, I'm going to make my faith mesh better with modern sensibilities. And that is simply putting another philosophy in the driver's seat. Another wisdom. The wisdom of this age in the driver's seat. And Paul's saying, as a Christian, hey, no, no, no. We need to flip that around. You see, you want to deconstruct your faith? Fine. Don't deconstruct it against modernity. Deconstruct it against the cross. In fact, go ahead and deconstruct modernity against the cross too. Like that is what needs to be central. That is the wisdom of the age to come. You may have noticed in this sermon series at least, and, and just some of the sermons I've preached lately, I am in a season of deconstructing modernity myself right now a bit. Uh, I've been reading a lot of just cultural analysis and things like this. You've heard me talk about age of authenticity, stuff like that, and uh, people who are trying to understand like what's just like underneath the hood of the way we think today. And as I do this, uh, all I can say is it makes the gospel look just so much more beautiful as I do this. I'll give you an example. Let's, uh, one thing that our culture really values right now is freedom. Freedom, right? We talk about freedom all the time. Now, a lot of a lot of smart people have observed that our idea of freedom 
has changed over the years, over the centuries. See, there was a time in history where freedom simply meant that you, are, you have the ability to do what's good, the ability to do the right thing, to pursue the good. And so a person who wasn't free was a person who was maybe deformed in their spirit or who was ignorant. They didn't have wisdom. They didn't have courage to do what was right and to do what was good. Of course, that kind of depends on culture having a, generally, generally, a general agreement on what's right and good, and that's not always a given. And over the centuries, then, the understanding of freedom has, has shifted. In fact, in, you know, in a pluralist culture like our own, um, we don't always agree on what the good is, like what is the end of humanity for, you know what I mean? Uh, we might have a different definition than our neighbor as far as that goes, but, but what happened was freedom started to shift. And so uh, what happened was there, there, it, started, it was less about an external, an external thing, like pursuing what is right, something outside of ourselves. And it started to have this, this kind of internal criteria to it. And you see this in like the writers of the Constitution. It talks about, well, freedom is like, like the pursuit of happiness, you know, being free to pursue happiness and stuff like that. But this notion of freedom still had some constraints. The founding fathers of our, of our nation, they, they kind of understood that, or it was assumed at least, that, that there was a certain degree of agreement in society among members uh, that, hey, I'm free to pursue my happiness as long as it doesn't keep you from pursuing, pursuing your happiness as well. As long as we kind of keep it within the bubble, you know, then we're free to do it. But some are saying that freedom has been redefined even more in recent years. That we're, that we're living now in kind of the advent of a new understanding of the word freedom. And the word, the phrase that they often use is self-determining freedom. We've pushed beyond even like the, the founders, the writers of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Like we've moved even beyond that in our understanding of what constitutes true freedom. Self-determining freedom. What this says, it says your life is not complete. You cannot be fulfilled until you have the complete freedom to determine your own path in all things without any external constraints whatsoever. And as technology advances more and more, then this becomes more and more possible, or at least it seems that way to us. And so this is, we've talked about the age of authenticity. This is one of the facets of it, self-determining freedom. And what matters in this view is not what you choose. It's not so much a matter of what you choose to do with your life, but simply the fact that you chose it. That is what makes it good. That is what makes it true. The person who can determine their own path, whatever it may be, is the person who's truly free, truly alive. Charles Taylor says, self-determining freedom demands that I break the hold of all such external impositions and decide for myself alone. True freedom comes, we are told, only when there are no barriers in the path to your goal. And look, the implications of this are very big. What we're saying here is that I don't have any sort of responsibility to you, but you have one to me to make sure I can live out whatever impulses or desires that I have. And you can see the conflict, and we see this emerging in many ways in culture. But we set out on a project of erasing limits and it, it's catching up to us in many ways. I mean, it's catching up to us environmentally. It's imposing a crushing burden of decision-making on our young people. I mean, imagine now growing up in a world that says, hey, 
the truly good and right thing is for you to decide absolutely everything about the way your life should go. No authority, no submission to a tradition, no, you know, what the past says is really irrelevant. What you need to do is decide for yourself the biggest questions in life. And you don't get to draw on the wisdom of the ancients. You don't get to draw on the wisdom of those who have gone before you because what's good, what's true, what's wonderful, what's free is free to do it yourself. This is a crushing demand for many young people today. Look at what Paul writes. I want you to think about how different it sounds from our modern secular age. It says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, listen. One of Paul's favorite ways to introduce himself is as a slave of Christ. These things could not be any more different. Friends, we need to start pursuing God's wisdom, start chasing God's wisdom, not the wisdom of this age. Research continues to show that there is a rapid decline of faith in our culture. Particularly among younger generations, we call them the nuns. These are people who don't identify any sort of religious worldview whatsoever. As well as atheists and agnostics. In fact, studies show that that group, the nuns, atheists, agnostics, that group of people, went from 9% of the population to 21% of the population between the years 2012 and 2018, okay? I'll say it one more time. In six years, that group grew by 12% of the population. That is meteoric. That is light speed growth we're talking here. There's a great podcast. John Tyson's a pastor in New York, and he's interviewed on the podcast. And uh, he, he talks about a conversation he had with a guy named David Kinneman, who leads the Barna Group. And Barna is like a think tank research organization. And uh, David Kinneman runs it. And probably nobody on the planet knows more about the American church, like statistically at least, than David Kinneman. Like that's all they do, just like church-related research and stuff. And he said to John Tyson, he said, when you look at the data, he says this, we've reached the point of irreversible decline in the American church, he said. Like, this is a downer for me. He says, barring some youth revival or great move of God, it's all downhill from here. There's no turning this trend around, he said. And John Tyson put words in my mouth. He says, after he heard that, he thought, is all, is all I want to do is just manage the slow decline of the American church? He's a pastor too. Is all I want to do with my life is just manage the slow decline of the American church? Nah, that, that, that doesn't cut it for me. That's not what I signed up for. But I do think David Kinnaman might be right about something, that barring a move of God. And you know what's amazing about that? Is now it's not up to me anymore. Now I don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be brilliant. We don't have to have some sophisticated strategy. You know? You know what we got to be? we got to be foolish. 
That's what it means. Like the point of no return, irreversible decline. If anything's going to change, it's only going to be because we get foolish. You know, it's because we say, all right, I've had it with this age. I'm pressing into the age to come. It's when we decide to do that and we decide to, to let go of what we think is our sophisticated methodologies, when we decide to say, I'm done buying into the wisdom of this age, I'm pressing into God with everything I've got. That's our only hope. And on one hand, that's a bummer. On the other hand, that's amazing, you know? Like, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and bringing us to that point where all we have is you. All we have is you. Now, I talk about decline in the church. It's important to point out that that's true here. It's not true everywhere. Uh, Christianity is the largest, fastest growing, and most diverse belief system on the planet. By 2030, experts think there will be more Christians in China than in America. 2030, not very far away. By 2060, as much as 40% of the world's Christians will live in sub-Saharan Africa. 40%. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, check out The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins or anything Philip Jenkins has written. Now, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, black Christians will be the largest group of believers in the church. Christianity is not declining across the world. The place where Christianity is declining is among us Sophisticated white Westerners, frankly. And ironically, we're the ones who often think we've got it all together. I wonder if it's time for us to get foolish. I wonder if it's time for us to step back and say, you know, how's it going? Not great. Maybe we should look to somebody else and see how, if, you know, like maybe we should learn from somebody else. Because look, when we try to take the wisdom of this age and, and kind of fuse it with our faith, which is what we often do, when we try to say, hey, let's put like modernity in the driver's seat and let that, you know, when, when we do those sorts of things, we create an idol out of our faith. And here's the other thing, our culture, like if we want our culture to kind of set the terms of the wisdom of God or of our faith, uh, well, we should look around a little bit because the culture is drowning in its own selfishness right now. Data says that we are getting sicker and less content and unhappier by the minute. In fact, listen to some of the, some of the questions that come into the New York Times advice column. It says, I cheated on my wife. Why won't she get over it? My girlfriend wants an open relationship. Do I? I can answer that for you. No, <laughs> you don't. I love my boyfriend. Why does he live with his ex-wife? I lied about my degree to get a job. How do I come clean? This one's a little wordy, but I like it. It says, I refused to switch seats with a single parent traveling with a small child on a plane twice. Was I wrong? There's a common thread through all of these dilemmas that people write in about. At the root of them all is some form of self-determined freedom. I should be able to do absolutely whatever I want. And nobody should make me feel bad about it. I wonder if this whole self-determined freedom experiment needs to be deconstructed a little bit because it's leaving carnage in its wake. I wonder if we can lead the way in saying, look, by the way, I like freedom, okay? But there is something different going on here in the gospel. 
when Paul says, I am a slave of Christ, that should strike us as odd, you know? And so as, as Christianity kind of fades from our culture, here's the opportunity I think it presents us. It's this, becoming less powerful is a chance to become more pure. It's a chance for us to remember the way of Jesus is not about winning, it's about dying. It's not about winning a culture war. It's about loving a culture. As modern worldviews leave people increasingly lonely, confused, afraid, the world will need deep, resilient disciples of Jesus to cover up, to put our hands upon the wounds of a hurting world and to heal them. The wisdom of the world says, look, win at all costs. Do what it takes to live out your impulses, your desires, to get what you want. But listen, the wisdom of the cross is not about victory, but death. And this is important because some Christians will read these verses that we've been looking at and they'll, and they'll use it as kind of fuel in the culture war, right? They'll say, yeah, the wisdom of the world's foolishness. God's bringing it to nothing. We win. Oh, man, but they've already bought into the wisdom of this world. That's the irony of it. Because the wisdom of the age to come is the wisdom of the cross. And the cross, is, it, the cross says, lay down your life. That's what the cross says. It's not a power to win, to conquer, or to defeat. It's a power to serve. Frankly, it's a power to think less of yourself. And you know what happens when you start thinking less of yourself? You're free. You're free. This is why Jesus points to children, to the poor, to the marginalized. He says, you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? Look over there. So it's time to get foolish. My name's Wiseman, but... Got a lot of educated people in this church, a lot of college degrees, got some doctorates. I got two master's degrees myself. You know what Paul would say? He'd say, big deal. Big deal. The only wisdom that matters is the wisdom of this world. I'm sorry, the wisdom of the age to come. <laughs> so I want you to do a heart check with me here. I want to I want to ask you some questions, and maybe you can, you can help to kind of determine what age am I in? The, 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 the question we ask ourselves as Christians, what time is it? What time is it? What age am I in right now? Am I living in this age? Or have I taken upon myself the life of the age to come? So ask yourself, um, do you want to beat the culture? Or does your heart break for the culture? Do you want to win a war? Or do you want to lay yourself down for the hurting? Do you see people that disagree with you as the enemy? Or do you see them as people who you are called to love specifically? Does your heart break for the loss, for people who don't know Christ? Or do you rather just avoid them? How about this? Do you gossip about brothers and sisters in Christ, about other people in the church? Or when was the last time you prayed for God to humble you? I was listening to a sermon. I had a drive yesterday and I was listening to a sermon. He was talking about humility and I was just like, as he was going through like the specifics of it, I was like, ah, I'm not very humble. <laughs> yeah, by those, by those standards, I'm not very humble. Lord, help me. And there was this quote by C.S. Lewis, kind of a famous quote, but it's so good. 
says, what's a humble person? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. That's a British term, I think. Who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Be honest, is that, is that you? I know I got some work to do. I got some work to do to become more foolish, to take upon myself the life of the age to come, the life that is defined by the cross. And so we're going to pray in a moment, but look, if you don't have that life, if you realize maybe you've been in church a lot, maybe you've gone to church a long time, and you're like, I, I am 100% in this age, and I don't know anything about the age to come. Like, if you want to enter, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to say, Jesus, I want to take up my cross today, just let us know. Tell us in your connection card. If you're online, there's a connection card. I think you can click on it at the top of the screen somewhere in the menu. And we would love to get a hold of you and to walk with you and help you understand what it looks like. This is The word for this is discipleship. It's where we're deprogramming. Being, by God's grace, God is deprogramming us from the ways that we've been taught in order to enter the way of Jesus, the way of the age to come, the way of the cross. And that's why we exist at Table Church, is to help you live that out. And so let us know. Say, I accepted Christ today, or I'd like to accept Christ. And we will follow up and be in touch with you about that. Would you pray with me? Well, God, um, this is really hard for us to do. We, we um, have so many assumptions and presuppositions about the way life works, the what constitutes the right, the good, the, the, the good life. And so, Lord, may we be so radically transformed that we're about nothing but your gospel, nothing but the cross and the love that pours out from it that compels us into the world in order to love those who, who are hurting. God, that takes courage. It takes energy. We're going to be inconvenienced for it. But Lord, I, I just think there's no better way to live. May it be true of us, Lord. May we become more foolish, I pray. In your name.